We find ourselves at a pivotal point in our study of this book. We have witnessed so far now three major conflicts that Christians have had with the religious authorities. The first was with Peter and John, and uh, they were thrown in jail, and then they were later released. And then the second was with the apostles and Peter. They were thrown in jail and then beaten and then released. And the third is here with Stephen. And here we see Stephen eventually losing his life. So the persecution is progressing. As a result, a lot of the Christians in Jerusalem fled the city. And so in God's sovereignty, that was kind of God's plan in seeing these people then spread Christianity beyond the city of Jerusalem. And this marks the first time, by the way, in the conflict uh, that, that we've seen with Christians where the general populace has turned against the church. Uh, before this, it was just strictly the religious authorities, but not so in this case here in Acts 6. So most of the rest of the book now of Acts is dealing with events outside of the city of Jerusalem. So let's uh, stand and take a look at our passage. We're at Acts 6, verses 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of, of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his, uh, this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that the Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So, Lord, we ask that you might speak to our hearts today, that in this passage that is such a challenge as we see a man with great boldness and courage, and yet with grace as he dealt with others, challenges us as we deal with conflict in our own lives. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to consider how we might allow your Holy Spirit to fill us, to use us in conflict, in trials, when there's opposition, and that we might work out kind of character that, that Stephen displayed. Uh, we know it's only because of your spirit that these things can take place, your supernatural work. So we welcome your work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're embarking on one of the most courageous stories um, about a man in Scripture, Stephen. And it's not too uncommon, I think, when we read a story like this to kind of separate ourselves and say, well, you know, I could, I could never be like that guy. You know, that's pretty incredible that a guy would do that. 
In his book, Against the Flow, Oxford professor John Lennox notes that when God calls us to do something difficult, he gives us the strength for that event or trial, whatever it is. He illustrated this principle by talking about a follower of Christ who was Russian who had spent time in a Siberian labor camp that Lennox had, uh, had met. And the man was thrown in prison for the crime of teaching children the Bible. And this is what Lennox wrote. I, he described to me that he had seen things that no man should ever have to see. I listened thinking how little I really knew about life and wondering how I would have fared under his circumstances. As if he had read my thoughts, he suddenly said, you couldn't cope with that, could you? Embarrassed, I stumbled out something like, no, I'm sure you're right. He then grinned and said, nor could I. I was a man who fainted at the sight of his own blood, let alone that of others. But what I discovered in the camp was this. God does not help us to face theoretical situations, but real ones. Like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in the gulag. But once there, I found that God met me exactly as Jesus had promised his disciples when he was preparing them for victimization and persecution. And then Lennox adds this, that we, we can be confident that the Lord will give us a sufficient amount of grace to handle whatever comes our way, whenever it comes our way, and not necessarily a moment before, end quote. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Well, I suppose we can first look at this as something removed from our experience. You're thinking, well, you know, that was for those days and not today. And the temptation, I think, is to kind of dumb down the miracles when we read something like this in the book of Acts. And we, we apply some preconceived theological notion that, you know, that could never happen today. Or we romanticize it. And, you know, we say things like, we should all be doing things like this, and we make other Christians feel guilty if they're not demonstrating said miracles. And what I hope to do is steer away from both of those extremes and just allow the text to breathe on its own as we take a look at this. Now, the first thing I would say as we read this passage is that there are some folks that just go through the motions of ministry. You meet up with people, whether they're, you know, just volunteering in the church or, or they're other pastors. They provide merely an external kind of mechanical service, but it's obvious their heart is not in the ministry. And this is a far cry from what we read of Stephen, where it says, full of grace and power, and doing great works and signs among the people. When I think of somebody full of grace, I think of somebody with an infectious benevolence toward others. And this grace doesn't just, you know, have sloppy kisses for everyone, but it's, it, it's with power. It's something supernatural, meaning it goes beyond natural boundaries. It's not just expressed towards other people that we like, but it's expressed also towards those that we're in opposition with. And it's, it's compelling. I mean, the truthfulness of this witness of Stephen 
It could not be denied because of the, the moral character of his life. He was a man full of faith in the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And this certainly gave him great confidence that God could do anything. What I notice about this is that Stephen was not some angry young preacher who was, you know, kind of belching out the fires of hell. And, you know, maybe according to your Christian subculture that you grew up in, you know what I'm talking about, that, that some view the Holy Spirit moving in people only when the volume gets to a certain level and they speak with a certain staccato, you know, in, in their voice. It's, it's just kind of odd that they speak a lot differently up on the stage than they do in real life. But anyway, um, and that we deem as the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't seem to be what Stephen was doing. Here's, a, here's a, just a man full of grace and the Holy Spirit, it says full of grace and the Holy Spirit. Give me one guy like that, full of grace and the Holy Spirit, and it'll accomplish more than a hundred other servants of Christ who are not full of grace and full of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's much that's said about the activity of the Holy Spirit today and being the national headquarters for the Assembly of God and Baptist Bible Fellowship, never shall the twain meet, all right? Uh, speaking theologically, especially on the topic of the Holy Spirit. And usually what it is, it's an opportunity for people to regurgitate their theological proclivities, you know, never mind whether it actually matches up with Scripture or not. And my hope is that there's no preaching of mine that would ever limit God in your heads and in your hearts but also that I would not offer up some prescription that if you do A, B, and C, then for sure you're going to see a miracle if you just do this. I think both of those are extremes, and neither of those I find very compelling. What we find here in the book of Acts and in this story is not a prescription, but we see the fruit of the Spirit manifested And if I had to say anything that was ironclad about the Holy Spirit's work in our life, it would be the fruit of the Spirit, like these kids sang to start the service. In difficult times, I think the fruit of the Spirit is no less miraculous than a person being healed. But I like it that a person is healed, too. I was thinking several years ago when uh, I lost my cool in a meeting. And though I felt I was right in what I believed and what I was saying, I was not right in how I said it and in my anger. Uh, I was certainly not full of grace, did not demonstrate Holy Spirit kind of power in that moment. What I'd like to do is be able to have the Holy Spirit manifested in real life, in times like that, in times of, of conflict. And when I get that down, then maybe I can talk about other kind of miracles that, that God can do in my life. Now, I'm not saying that uh, I'm going to earn the miracles because you're not. And the fact is God is not going to work on my timetable or with my sequence. And the fact is, is that none of us deserve to have God using us and doing miraculous things, period. But uh, my point is that 
I want the Holy Spirit working on my life daily in terms of sanctification, in terms of working out the fruit of the Spirit. And then anything else, that's icing on the cake. Doing great works and signs among people. I take that to mean things like healing, sign gifts. Can God do that today? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think God works in all kinds of of supernatural, miraculous ways. But I'm not going to sit here and dictate how God is going to do it, but I'm going to expect him to do it. And I want to be able to walk in faith and ask God to do big, miraculous, supernatural things. Where, Where true faith exists, power is present. Where power is present, results that are supernatural are going to be produced. And that includes loving those who hate us. That is miraculous. That is supernatural. That includes trusting God when the doctor says that, yes, you do have cancer. That is no less miraculous fruit of the Spirit. Uh, To quote Wave Nunley in his commentary in Acts, and um, I love Wave. We've been kind of going back and forth and having a discussion online about what this means. He's a Pentecostal. I'm not. But I think we've been able to kind of have a a great understanding of some of the extremes. And he's challenged me, and I think me, him. But uh, this is what he said, and I love this quote from him. He said, the promise of Acts 1.8 stands as true today as it was 20 centuries ago. God empowers men and women, children, by filling them with the Holy Spirit so they can more effectively serve him. Uh, I get behind that 100%. Um, and I think God wants to work in us in a supernatural way. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, Luke provides some details here about his opposition. And when he provides these kind of details, uh, this is not just useless trivia. He's letting us know the kind of opposition that Stephen faced. And here's who they were. They were Hellenists. They were were foreign Jews, not of Jerusalem. They were the same people that Stephen was called to minister to in verses 1 through 6 as he was ministering to the widows who were Hellenists, who were not getting fed and not getting the the money that they needed for support, he he was ministering to those people, and it's these same folks, at least the group of folks, that was in opposition to the Christian leaders. And what's interesting about that is that often our opposition comes from those people that we least expect those that we work closely with. Now, we read here of the synagogue, and we understand that the temple was different than the synagogue. The the temple usually was, you know, a bigger place. It was for the sacrifices and national assemblies. The the, the synagogues were different in that this is where the people um, came together and worshiped on the Sabbath. It was where they came together for social activities, the Jews. And we read from the Talmud that there were 480 synagogues in Jerusalem at this time. And a lot of those would have, you know, separate gathering for people of 
uh, you know, a different people group. Like here you have, you know, Spanish churches that meet together or Russian churches, and it was like that in Jerusalem. Now, Cilicia was a Roman province in the southeast part of Asia Minor, and that was where, by the way, Saul or Paul was from, Tarsus in, in uh, uh, Cilicia. Uh, Asia was a Roman province in the western part of what is now modern-day Turkey, and Cyrene and Alexandria, these were major cities in northern Africa. Now, again, it's likely that each of these people met in separate synagogues. Uh, They could have been together. We don't know. It's not said specifically, but we assume that because there were 480. And one might think that the foreign Jews might be a little more tolerable, uh, less radical than the ones right there in Jerusalem. But apparently it was the opposite. I mean, the foreign Jews wanted to hold on to their Judaism. They tended to be more nationalistic, kind of fawning for their homeland, Jerusalem. And perhaps they wanted to prove their faithfulness before the Jewish authorities now that they have come to Jerusalem. Uh, I think on a side note, one thing that's quite interesting is that Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, later to become the Apostle Paul, he was present when Stephen was persecuted and was killed. We read in Acts 7.58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, it's conjecture beyond this on what part that Saul played in this scenario, but Saul was a part of the Sanhedrin. And so he had to be in the middle of the action. He could have been there arguing with Stephen. Uh, He could have been there part of the people that that captured Stephen. We don't know for sure, but certainly he was in the know about all that was going on. And it speaks of the synagogue of the freedmen. You know, I love the names of the, the different synagogues. It looks like there are a lot of different names of Christian churches today. But it refers to those people who formerly were slaves, and now they're free. And the synagogue could have had even some of their descendants here. Sixty million slaves under Rome at this time. That's a lot of people. And Israel, we know, had been under the de- denomination uh, domination, excuse me, of many other countries for several hundred years, but now Rome. And archaeologists, very, uh, this is interesting, had found an inscription to the synagogue of the freedmen in Jerusalem. But the irony is the name of the synagogue, the freedmen, okay? And they're arguing with a man, Stephen, who is offering them freedom from their sin, spiritual freedom but yet they're called the freedmen. This debate that they were having was certainly about law and grace, the gospel and Judaism, Jesus. And apparently, Stephen won the debate, but they didn't like that. He had unparalleled wisdom. The spirit was upon him, and it says in verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They were unable to refute Stephen because he was filled with the spirit and wisdom. They could neither support their own arguments or refute his. 
It was with irrefutable evidence that he presented Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Well, if we learn anything from this, we can gain this insight, is that argumentation alone does not win the heart of people. Because they had great argumentation in the person of Stephen. There's more needed to make a person bow their knee, to have conviction of the Holy Spirit. They have to submit their wills and their conscience before a holy God. And that is what these people were unwilling to do. And the fact is, our culture is fostering a people who are much less likely to entertain arguments against their own philosophy. They, they make claims of being offended or even having others push their beliefs on, on them when all that's taking place is you're making a case for your belief or for your philosophy. Why? Because people find it intolerant just to make a case. That's called being intolerant. They want nothing but to have their beliefs approved. That is the kind of society we live in. And so when the people could not refute Stephen, the situation turned vindictive, fraudulent, and even violent. And we get to verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered. Notice they secretly instigated, meaning they couldn't win the public you know, debate. They didn't go face to face. They went behind the back and they spread lies. They said what was not true, that Stephen spoke against Moses, that he spoke against God, that he wanted the temple destroyed. Now, Jesus got in similar trouble when he said in John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, of course, he was speaking about himself, his own body. He would die on a cross. That was his temple. And he'd be raised three days later. And in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law, not to get rid of it. So ultimately, Stephen's core message was on Jesus and the gospel, and that is what these people rejected. So they continue the assault, and it says that they stirred up the people and the religious leaders, and they came upon him and seized him. The wording there makes it sound like it was almost like a surprise attack. It was while, you know, Stephen was just walking through the streets, or it may have even been into his own home, but they seized him. And so opposition is at a fever pitch, and notice now it includes the people. These are the same people that in Acts 2.47, it says that the Christians had favor with all the people. 
These are the same people that in Acts 4.21 it says the council did not want to bring harm to the apostles because they were fearful of the people. And so the people were previously in favor of the Christians and now they are plotting, they are lying, and they are ready for violence. And they set up false witnesses to say that Stephen was against the, the, the temple, he was against God. They were just repeating the same accusations they gave Jesus. They were wrong in their charge of blasphemy. And I think even blinded by their own nationalism. Because they didn't want a Messiah like Jesus. They wanted a military Messiah to deliver them from Rome. And so the crowd is extremely fickle. And Stephen, he, he knew some of these people. They had, they had connections with him. They were foreign Jews like him. He committed to, to helping and, and ministering to those Jewish widows who had converted to Christ and helping them with food. And now what we see is that these Hellenists are lying, going behind his back, plotting against him. You know, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, but every Christian is going to have opposition. And I happen to think it's not going to get any better. Uh, The only thing I think is going to turn this nation around is a spiritual revival. It's not going to be a political one. It's going to be a spiritual one. That's what we need more than anything. But every Christian is going to get opposition, and especially Christian leaders. And I think the most hurtful, at least from an emotional standpoint, are from those that are closest to you. Those that you'd least expect it. I mean, maybe when you came to Christ, you expected your family to be excited when you named the name of Christ, but you found opposition. And that's very hurtful. Maybe there are people that you ministered with, And now they're lying and opposing you, and that's hurtful. I mean, it's hard to see other pastors quit the ministry. The average tenure of a pastor at a church is two and a half years. I would say to anybody who's considering the pastorate, don't. Unless you can't do anything else. Unless you know this is what God has called you to do. Now, some of the pain that pastors have, I get that some of it can be self-inflicted. But most of it is not. And most of it is, I think, Satan trying to create havoc within the church. Now, I've never been stoned, and I hope I'm not. I don't wish for it, but I have been threatened, lied about, smeared, my family judged, And these are from people who I thought were friends. It's not to even speak of the enemies. And the natural inclination is to fight back and defend yourself. It reminds me of what Mark Twain said, is that a lie spreads halfway around the world while the truth is getting its pants on. And I think that takes place when people say lies about you People who you thought cared, people who pledged 
their allegiance to you will drop you like a bad habit. And we live in a time in which people are far less likely now to confront and come face to face. But they have no problem with gossip and bearing false witness. The crowd is fickle. I don't say that to garner sympathy. I say that because it's reality. And we have to face reality. But here's some more reality. Here's the other side. 95% of, I think, what at least I do in ministry, I can't speak for every other pastor, is awesome and great. All right? Positive. And most of you are responsible for that. Right? But I'm not too unlike most other people. You remember the crappy 5% and have a tendency to forget the 95% great stuff. Isn't that true? And so we have to work at really helping our hearts to remember that and focusing on the things that are positive. Listen, though, to 1 Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I got a wonderful note from somebody this week. From a family who attends here in the the woman was saying, hey, how, how can we pray for you and Janet? And I know many of you pray for us, and I so appreciate that. Um, and you pray for us consistently, and it, I can't even begin to tell you how much that means to us. But this is what she added. She said, my pastor back home, she said, is getting torn to shreds. And he has. He has no protection. I'm not getting torn to shreds, so don't read that into it, all right? I'm not trying to say that. It's just my heart goes out. I do know what that's like, though. So she said, how can we pray for you guys? It's certainly encouraging that people pray for you. But here's the challenge. And I think you don't have to be a pastor to know this, okay? That when opposition comes, when trials come, difficulties, the easy thing is to be bitter. The easy thing is to shut ourselves up and not to share our pain with others, not to get help. That's the easy thing. I've experienced that. The hard thing, it's, not make, it's, it's like you are wrestling with the angels on how you can get perspective. I don't, I'm not going to give you some secret formula. It's hard to maintain a healthy heart in opposition. That's hard. But it's good. <laughs> it's good. And, and, it, and it's God's sanctifying power. It's God humbling us. It's God tearing away at the things that we thought we had that we could trust in from an earthly view, and you can't. Because your hope is Christ. And it's like we're just, you know, all these trials are a way to kind of shake away the cobwebs and realize, oh, there you are, Lord. I was, I was looking at all these other things. I was hoping for all these other things to be fixed around me, but 
there you are. And that's what I think those hard times do. It, it shakes all that other stuff away. And what was, the, what was the fruit of that for Stephen? And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. See this face of an angel right here? Yeah. I'm not even sure what this means, all right, that he had a face of an angel. I've got to be honest with you. You know, did it glow like Moses? I don't know. But I know this. Stephen wasn't threatening to sue them. His opponents saw a countenance that revealed the touch of God on him. Now, that's what I want. That's what we all need. That's what we all want. And it says his face was like an angel. Did it light up like Moses? Maybe. We don't know. But I can guess that maybe he was thinking about John 16, when Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. But you can have peace in the tribulation. Oh, man, it hurts. The opposition When's it ever going to stop? But I have peace. And when my head hits the pillow, I sleep like a baby. That's what God can do. And that's what Jesus does for us when he, when he works in our heart in the midst of opposition. Or maybe he was thinking of Romans where it said, uh, if God be for us, you finish it. Who can be against us? Wow. You see, when I'm in Christ, to live as Christ, to die as gain, it, it's a win if I'm killed because I'm going to be with Jesus. And it's a win if I'm alive because I can still live for Jesus and be on mission. Either way, I'm good. Either way, that's something to take great hope and glory in that, Christ can be honored through my life. Um, Maybe it was the hope of Romans 8.18 that the sufferings on this earth can't even be compared to what we will experience in heaven. Mother Teresa said, all the troubles you have on earth are going to seem like an inconvenient night in a dirty hotel compared to eternity. She's right. She's right. How ironic, isn't it, that Stephen had the face of an angel. And you know, it was angels who were a part of delivering the law to Moses. Isn't that interesting? I mean, these, these people had no clue the irony that was going on in this whole episode, you know, called freedmen and killing the guy who was giving them freedom. Noticing he had the face of an angel, and it was angels who delivered the law. Stephen wasn't against the law. God was there for Stephen at a, at a critical juncture. And the hope for us, the confidence we can have, is that God is there for us as well. Now, see, your, your trial may be different, but God is there for you in the midst of that. He will strengthen us. He will provide exactly what we need in that moment. 
You see, that meeting where I blew up, I didn't have to do that. I chose to do that. I let my anger get the best of me, but I didn't have to do that. I hope that I've learned from that. What we can't have confidence in is that the power, the presence, the promises of God are just as true for us in that difficulty as when we're enjoying a comfortable life. In fact, it's probably even more so in the difficulty because we're aware of it so much more at that time. Such a heart, such a faith can't help but have an outward countenance that you've been touched by God. Maybe your face won't glow, but I think we'll see a difference. There'll be an external display. And I bet you those around you can really see the difference. It may not be a miracle of me healing a blind man. I hope that happens one day. I've seen God do miracles. It may be the miracle of you enduring through a difficulty with your confidence still in Christ, knowing that God still wants to give you victory, knowing that you're still going to be used by God. Maybe the miracle is going to be that you're going to rid yourself of the shame and the embarrassment of you replaying that tape over and over again of your worst moment and knowing that God doesn't define you by that. You are defined by the fact that you are a child of God, chosen in him. You are part of the beloved. That's how God defines you. Let's pray.